Father, as we look in John this morning, I'm just aware again that human words uh, spoken in human energy cannot produce life. It's your spirit and it's truth that brings life. And I pray that your spirit is active in our midst today. And as we read in your word, which is truth, that you'll take these things and you'll make them real to us and you'll change us from the inside out because of that. Help us to honor your son. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, something I forgot to mention. Borsing Rongpi, I'm not stuttering, Borsing Rongpi, one of our missionaries with GFA, just graduated from Bible school, so he's full-time now in his work, which I'll pass along, and we're going to have some pictures. Eric's going to scan some pictures. On the Internet, you might visit in the next week or two the chapel that we contributed to in Bolivia with the Scoggins is up. There's a picture of that. And then Borsing and his bride, we also have a brand new picture of. Just came just too late to get in this current directory, so we'll pass those along too. You can see them online. You know, if I, I don't know what kind of claim I'd make, but if I came to you guys on a Sunday morning or any other time and I, and I claimed something that you thought sounded impossible or wacky or far-fetched, Danielle, I don't know what it would be. Uh, <clears throat> how much evidence would it take to convince you that even though I was saying something that sounded really out of line, how much evidence would it take to convince you that it was really true? If I said something that's far-fetched, it's wild, whatever, it's outrageous initially, but let's just assume that it really was true, how much evidence would it take for you to believe what seemed improbable or impossible? I'm going to start this morning with uh, just a vignette out of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And when this story starts, this kid's story for adults sort of, when this story starts, these four children, I think it's from London during the bombings in World War II, they get sent out to the country to a big manor house where it's safe. This really happened, of course, in World War II England. But in Lewis's fictional account, four kids in the house with a professor, big rangy house, and they're free to roam and play in there when the weather's bad. So they do, they play hide and seek. And Lucy, one of the four kids, goes to hide in a wardrobe. I don't know if the thing is still in the hall. It is. Okay, you can look at one in the hall when you leave this theater this morning. Goes to hide in a wardrobe while playing hide and seek, and she kind of pushes in the back, and she ends up in this parallel world. She ends up in these woods, and she walks through the snow. It's winter there. Hi, guys. Wow, welcome back, Alicia. Do you have a bit of the Blarney about you today? Alicia's been in Ireland for a month, so if she looks a little green around the gills, that's why. Chad, welcome. Uh, anyway, we're in the wardrobe. We go through the wardrobe with Lucy into this alternate world, and it's the woods, and it's snowing. She meets a fawn, this mythical creature with kind of goat hooves and a man's body. And wow, how cool. And she comes back, and later on, her brother Edmund does the same thing. She goes to tell her, her siblings, Susan and Peter, what has happened. I've been through the wardrobe into a parallel world, and I've met a fawn named Mr. Tumnus. And <clears throat> you can imagine the incredulity of her older siblings. It's like, no way. So she looks to her brother Edmund for backup. Well, Edmund has reasons for not telling the truth. So he lies and says, no, I don't know what she's talking about. It's all make-believe. It's all make-believe. And poor Lucy 
she's just beside herself. She's kind of losing her grip because she knows that what she's saying is true, but there's no way, she has no power, no way to affect change so that her siblings will believe her. What she's saying is true. doesn't sound like it's even possible, but in the story it's true. She just can't get anyone to believe her. In John 10, Jesus has made claims that the Jews of his day find improbable, if not impossible. And so the question comes up again. A claim is made, sounds improbable, maybe impossible. How much evidence does it take to convince you that it's true? Wild as it sounds initially, how much evidence does it take to convince you it's true? We're in John 10. By the way, this is a lengthy passage for us this morning, 22 through 42, 20 verses, far more than we normally take, but it is a, a section I wanted to treat in one piece. So we'll actually carve this up in pieces and work our way through. Uh, starting at verse 22, at that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. And excuse me as I explain a couple things here. Remember, this follows on the Good Shepherd Discourse. We've changed gears, though. We're at the temple in Jerusalem. When it says the Feast of Dedication, this is what we would call Hanukkah today. This celebrated the time in 165 B.C. when Judas Maccabeus had put down Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrians. They'd taken the temple back, and they'd cleansed it and restored it. And that's the celebration that John is talking about here. He says, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And this portico of Solomon on the east side of the temple precinct area, if you read in Acts later, you'll see the early church was meeting at this same location. The Jews gathered around him, Jesus, and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Remember the Jews are wondering what box to put Jesus in and the Messiah is somebody they're looking for. So they say again, don't leave us in suspense. Are you the Messiah? Tell us clearly yes or no. Don't leave us in suspense. Now Jesus says, I've already told you, but you don't believe my words. And then he says, the works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. So when they say, hey, put up or shut up, are you the Messiah? Jesus says two things. I've said I am verbally, and I've shown that I am through my works. Verbally, if we just look back in John's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus said, My Father, verse 17, is working until now, and I myself am working. The Jews, therefore, were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, he was healing on the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Jews understood Jesus was making a claim when he said, my father's working, I'm working, that he was actually claiming deity, deity status. John 8, 58, Jesus speaking to the Jews says, before Abraham was born, I am. And you remember the I am in Greek, it's this claim to eternal existence, and this would be the Greek version of the Hebrew word Yahweh, God's personal name to Israel, where he said, I am that I am. So when Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, 58, I am, he was saying the same thing. I am the eternally existent one. For a start, if the Jews weren't sure about the messianic claims, here they knew Jesus was claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God. Then in John 9, just before the passage we're in this morning, remember in John 9, Jesus had healed a man who had been born blind, and this caused another uproar because he healed on the Sabbath. And then the religious leaders had followed up on all of this. And, 
And uh, their treatment of this guy was to kick him out of the temple and of the synagogue. But at verse 35, Jesus went out and found him and said to the man who was formerly blind, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, when Jesus says the Son of Man is a key term from Daniel chapter 7, which is messianic. It's clear. It's messianic. The Messiah gets authority from the Father and he comes and rules the world. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've both seen him, and he's the one who's talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's important. If you read verse 39 and 40 in John 9, you realize there's other religious leaders here. This isn't Jesus and this man by himself. These leaders have heard Jesus claim to be the Messiah. And they've seen this guy believe him and bow down and worship him. And then they also know from these earlier conversations, Jesus has claimed to be God on earth. These are his verbal claims. He said it and he's repeated it. So his words, when they pigeonhole him here in chapter 10 and say, are you or aren't you? He says, I've already said that I am. He's made clear claims to deity and he's made clear claims to be Israel's promised Messiah. So his words, he said, I've made the claim, but you've not believed. Then he said back in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, these so these are another testament to who I am. If you look in the works, just in John's Gospel, and remember when you read the Gospels, they're all oriented a little different way for different purposes, but in John's Gospel, we'd said we've hung John's Gospel on seven portraits, seven miracles. And to what we've come through already, we've got a few of these. In John 2, you remember the first miracle, Jesus turned water into wine in this public arena. John 4, Jesus publicly healed a royal official's son. John 5, Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem. This was one of the ones that caused a stir because he healed on the Sabbath. John 6, Jesus publicly fed 5,000 people and then privately walked across the Sea of Galilee to catch up with his disciples. And then in John 9, Jesus gave sight to the man born blind. So when Jesus says, my works testify to me as well, he's saying things that were public, that were well known, that were attested by... Many, many people, they'd all seen them. Back in John 7, verse 31, just thinking about the works and the signs and their testimony to Jesus, many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying to others, perhaps others who didn't believe, when the Christ or the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than those which this man has done, will he? In other words, if you're looking for signs to validate the Messiah, you don't think the, the Messiah is going to do more than Jesus has, do you? Heal the lame, heal the blind, reproduce. Remember in John, the feeding of the 5,000 was a symbol to show Jesus was greater than Moses. God fed Israel through Moses with manna. Jesus, the bread of life, feeds Israel with, by reproducing the loaves and the fish. If you ask yourself, or if we go back and we're asking about the crowds in Jesus' day, did the Jewish crowds have enough solid evidence to believe Jesus' crazy claims? Remember, he's a carpenter's son from Nazareth. He's a nobody from nowhere. But he makes these wild claims that anyone, when they first heard them, in fact, you remember Nathaniel and John 1? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What do you mean the Messiah is from Nazareth? So incredulity, this is absolutely understandable. But was there enough evidence through what Jesus said and what he did to conclude that even though it sounded crazy, 
this, this carpenter's son from Nazareth really was the Messiah, God on earth? There was. There was adequate testimony. Besides that, something else we've already looked at too. Do you remember why John the Baptist was on the earth? We've looked at this in Malachi. We've looked at this in John's Gospel. John the Baptist had one role, one mission on earth. You remember what it was? To prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah talked about him. Malachi talked about him. Said he'd come to the earth and he'd prepare the way for the Lord. So that when Jesus had come down to where John was at the river, John says, this is the Son of God. This is the one the Father has sent. So they also had the testimony of John the Baptist. So again, if you're there in their day and you say, is there adequate evidence, reason to believe Jesus' claims, you'd have to say, yes, there are. Besides that, it's important to remember, too, John's gospel was written so that you and I, or people like us, or people before after us, could believe in Christ as the Messiah, as God on earth, as our Savior and Shepherd. And nine times up to this point in John's gospel, John has told us, he's recorded for us, a person or a group has believed in Jesus. You remember that's the deal. Believe is the key term in John's gospel. And people all along have been rejecting Christ and his claims on one hand, but on the other, some have been believing all along as well. Why is it then that more in these groups Jesus is addressing, why is it that more of them didn't believe? Why is it that more people today don't believe? These next verses are insulting. They're a slap in the face, but Jesus says them nonetheless. You don't believe because you're not my sheep, he says. We ask the question, why didn't they believe? Why don't more people believe today? Jesus is fairly blunt. He says, you're not mine, and that's why you don't believe. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. They'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we say, why didn't they believe? Jesus says, why don't you believe? I'll tell you why, because you're not mine. Because you're not my sheep. Sounds fairly insulting to me, Stan. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. You're not mine, so you don't believe. The flip side of that, those who do believe, Jesus says in verse 29, my Father has given them to me. My Father has given them to me. Of those the Father gives to the Son, it says, they hear Jesus' voice, they're known by Jesus, and they follow him. When Jesus says that the Father gives him his sheep, we are talking about the language of election, the language of predestination and election. And I'm not going there this morning, not, not much anyway, because we've already looked at it. But if you remember... Last week, we talked about the fact that the scriptures say that the reason, or a key reason, if not the key reason, that God the Father kind of got it in his mind, so to speak, to create the heavens and the earth and man was just so that he could put his son at the top of the heap and heap more honor on Jesus Christ. Okay, that's our existence at some very basic significant level is because God the Father wanted to honor His Son because He loves Him so much. He loves to honor Him. That also applies in this place, that God the Father, in order to honor His Son, gives His Son sheep, people like you and me. 
I said, I'm not going into the issue of election. If you want to, John 6, 36 through 47, it's a teaching online courtesy of Eric on the website. You can go there and listen to that, or you can read any text. But it is interesting that the gospel written so that we would believe in the Son is also the gospel that talks more than any other about this issue of the Father choosing and the Son disposing. And it's a humbling element for human pride, but... There you have it, and do what you will with it. Jesus said in John 10.10 earlier, just going on with this issue of life, Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And then he describes what he gives his sheep. He says eternal life. In John 10.10, Jesus had said that he came to give life too. And there he talked about a quality of life. There he said, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Jesus said when he gives life, it's this full, joyful, peaceful, abundant, overflowing life. It's a quality of life. Here in our text this morning, Jesus says he came to give us eternal life, quantity, duration. Verse 28, I give eternal life to them. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father's given them to me. He's greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So that the life Jesus gives on one hand is is quality life. And then in the passage here, it's quantity life, eternal life. I've talked about this before, and I've used it so many times, frankly, that I hesitated to use it this morning, but I will. This picture of Jesus and eternal life, a couple things. If I tell you that I've given you something eternal, and then you say, how long does that last? Then I'd think, do you not understand simple language, right? It's eternal, so it lasts forever. So if I give you... Uh, Willy Wonka would give the kids everlasting gobstoppers. So everlasting, how long does it last? They ask him and he says, well, you can suck it and suck it and suck it forever and it never gets any smaller. Everlasting, lasts forever. The life in duration or quantity that Jesus gives, he says it is eternal. Just from a language point of view, if it's eternal, it lasts forever. If it's eternal, you've got it forever. If it's eternal and you can lose it, you never had it because eternal lasts forever. And we'll talk about the terms here in just a minute too. But the other thing is this. Jesus says, the Father's given me these sheep and I've given them eternal life. And this is what it looks like. This is how secure it is. They're like an object that I put in my hand. Now remember Jesus. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one who says he has authority to take his life, unlike you and I or anyone else. Take his life and put it down. Now, we might say a person who commits suicide, they can take their life and put it down. That's true. But can they pick it up again? No, they can't. Jesus said in the text before, last week, he said, I can take my life and set it aside, and then I can take it back up, as he'll do in his resurrection. He has authority no one else has. In other words, the picture is here, Jesus, God the Son, Jesus, the omnipotent God, puts you in the palm of his hand, and he closes it. How safe are you? With that eternal life, in the omnipotent Son's hand, how safe are you? I'd say you're pretty safe. I'd say that eternal life's pretty guaranteed. And then, to make it even more clear, eternal life, that'd be good. In the omnipotent Son's hand, that's secure. 
And then the omnipotent son's hand is in the omnipotent father's hand. How, how safe is that, eternal life, in an omnipotent hand? In an omnipotent hand. That's hard to say. That's pretty secure. That's pretty secure. Jesus says, I give abundant, peaceful, joyful, overflowing life, and it lasts forever, and it's so safe that it's the safest thing in the universe. Nothing safer. Eternal life guarded by an omnipotent God. You can't get any longer, and you can't get any more secure than that. You know, in today's markets, economics and finances, there's no hedge funds and there's no precious metals commodities and there's no bank vaults or whatever. Whatever represents security in your mind, nothing comes close to the security Jesus says his sheep have. He gives them eternal life. They'll never perish. They'll never die. And they're guarded by his omnipotent hand and his father's omnipotent hand. You can't get any more safe than that. And you can't live any longer than eternity. I feel like I'm missing a page, guys, as I look at my notes here. Maybe I am. What did I want to tell you? I'm missing my Greek notes. Sorry, let me, let me uh, reconnoiter here. The, uh, the term he uses, and I just, oh, here it is. I just skipped over it. Sorry. The Greek is zoane ionian for eternal life. We'd turn it around. The Greek, the syntax is opposite that we'd use in English. Zoe is life, and eons, we would translate in English. So Jesus says, I give life that lasts through the ages. I give life that lasts through the eons of time, as it were. And sorry, now I've got to re, re, uh, relocate myself entirely. Sorry about that. Okay, this is important. By the way, you guys know, if you talk to people, Christians, about salvation, uh, depending on what camp you're coming from or what you've heard or what texts you emphasize, You'll hear arguments that go like this. You're a Christian as long as you obey. You're a Christian as long as you don't sin the unforgivable sin. Or you chose Christ so you can unchoose him too. And depending on what circles you've been in, you'll hear this, this these, these conversations swirl and there are theological issues historically and current at stake here. But let me just say this. Uh, this is, if you've come to trust in Christ, I would argue probably... I can't think of a doctrine more important than this one, eternal life. And it's, it's for this reason. If I go through life afraid that I can lose my salvation, do you know what my focus is on? It's all on me. Because my salvation, even though I thought it was freely given, remember Ephesians 2, it's a free gift I get by grace. I don't do anything to earn it. But then if I think I can lose it, who maintains my salvation? I do. Who's it all resting on? Me. You know, it's a terrible way to live. Just absolutely terrible. And I would argue God the Father doesn't want any ambiguity in our mind. And that's why passages like this are so stinking clear. And if somebody wants to come in and rob you of your peace, let me just tell you, don't let them do it. It's only a Christian who knows absolutely, I have been saved by my Father in heaven through Christ the Son. I'm in an eternal God's hand, and it's in his Father's hand, and I'm secure as secure can be. That kind of understanding frees you and I to live the way God wants us to. You know, Jesus had no ambiguity about who he was or what he was doing. And because of that, he's free to do the Father's will. And if you and I get caught up thinking we're going to do something by which we'll forfeit eternal life, that, that will be the focus for your life. You'll be cursed because your salvation depends on you. And that is not the gospel. When you get eternal life, 
This is the other side. The rationale goes like this. Well, if you can't lose your, your salvation, then you'll do anything you want to. Uh, Christians do sometimes, frankly. If you read the New Testament, you'll read about it. Christians sin worse than the pagans sometimes. And guess what? They're still Christians and they're still going to heaven. Because it doesn't rest on their shoulders, because it rests on Christ. That's why it's eternal life. That's why it's absolutely eternally secure. Once you get this down, once if whatever that means in your mind, whatever thoughts, whatever prejudices that means getting over, whatever, however you wrestle with it, wrestle with it, you need to do so that you can get on with the business of honoring your life. Then you're free to thank your dad for all the things he does for you. Then you're free to get on, and when you sin, you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I blew it again. But you're no different than the prodigal son in Luke's gospel who was the father's son all along. You know, when he comes back and he says, I'll tell my father I'm his servant, dad won't hear it. Because Junior could never become someone other than his father's son. So when the father sees him again, he says, my son. Not, not my servant, not the guy I'm holding out there, my son. The son never became less than a son. He did sever what we call at our house happy fellowship with his father. But he could never become not his son because his birth meant he was a certain person with a certain parent. And for Christians, you've got to get a hold of this because if you don't, I just guarantee you'll spin the wheels of your minds, your emotions, and your lives worried about keeping a salvation that Jesus says is so secure you couldn't crawl out if you tried. The eternal life Jesus gives is eternal and it's abundant. And by the way, uh, to put a finer point on this, you remember in Romans 8, one of the great passages in the New Testament along the same line, similar thought. Paul's been talking to Christians. And by the way, he's talked in chapter 7 about these silly Christians. What do they do? They sin. And then they repent. And then they sin. And then they feel bad and they repent. Do you remember the circle? He says, I know what to do, but I don't do it. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. And he's talking about Christians. And then he talks about in chapter 8, the Spirit's been given. You're saved. And you remember how he closes that chapter about Christians? Sheep, Jesus' sheep. He said, what can separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate you and I from Christ and his love? What can take eternal life away from those Christ's loves? And then he goes through this list. Death can't and life can't. And by the way, if you notice, all of these are, uh, what's the word? They're exclusive terms. They exclude any other possibility. Death can't and life can't. If you die, you can't lose it. And if you live, you can't lose it. That sounds pretty secure to me. Angels can't take you from the love of God and demons can't. Think of the scariest ghost demon. Think of the most powerful angel in heaven. Neither one of them could take you from God's love no matter how hard they tried. The present, what's going on in your life right now, can't keep you from Christ. And the future can't keep you from Christ. On any one of these, you could just stop and say, let's see, if nothing going on right now can take me out of God's love, and if nothing in the future, can anything take me? No. No powers, no powers can take you from God's hand. Remember, you're in an omnipotent God's hand under an omnipotent hand. And then he says, and no height and no depth, no geography you can occupy, no matter how high you go, no matter how low you go, you can't escape God's love. Nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. If you're a Christian, that's the joyful truth. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Now, 
When I hear this today, I'm glad. Because I don't know about you, but I blow it big time routinely. So when Paul says, echoing Jesus' thought, I can never lose my salvation. It's not dependent on me. It's dependent on Christ. I'm thinking this is good stuff. I can live with this. So how does Jesus' audience respond to this good news? Well, verse 31, they picked up stones to stone him. Gosh, why is that? He says, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. This echoes chapter 5, verse 17, when Jesus had said something along the same line. You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. I don't know if you guys have had this when you talk with people... uh, you share your testimony, you're a Christian, or you talk about the exclusive claims of Christ, and they say something like this, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. You need to say, you know, you need to read John's gospel, because John differs with you. Jesus made clear claims to be God. So clear that you just can't get away from it. If you're honest, you can't get away from the claims. Then, then what you do with the claims is something else. But you can't get away from the claims. We started with C.S. Lewis. Let me mention another writing of his in Mere Christianity, He sums this up nicely when he talks about some people want to make Jesus a great moral teacher, kind of like a shaman or a, a, I don't know, whatever that we we call them in the East, uh, an iman or whatever. He's this great teacher, but he's not God. And Lewis points out you just can't have it that way because Jesus doesn't lead you that option. His claims are so wild and so fantastic that they're either true or they're not. So Lewis says this, He says, you can call Jesus a liar. That is to his claims. You you could just respond and say, I've heard the claims, he's lying. You could call Jesus a lunatic. You could say, only a crazy man would say such, such things. Or you could call Jesus Lord. That is, you could believe the claims and say, I understand who you are and you're the Lord. It's interesting. I don't know if Lewis had this passage in mind. You see all three in John 10, right here. Verse 33, you're lying. Blasphemy is a lie. You're a man. You've claimed to be God. That's a lie. You're lying. That's our conclusion. Or at verse 20, they concluded he has a demon. That is, he's out of his mind. He's a lunatic. He's not lying. He's just out of his mind. The poor guy doesn't know what he's saying. Demon possessed or a lunatic. But then also at the end of the passage, verse 42, Some heard the claims and they believed and called him Lord. In John 10, we see all three of these conclusions. It's got to be one or the other. Of these three options, it's got to be one or the other. None other exists. Moving on at verse 34, Jesus answered them, Hasn't it been written in your law, I said you're gods? If he, God, called them gods, small g, to whom the word of God came and the scripture can't be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, 6 here, which reads, I said you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High. In this passage, God, in Psalm 82, the original context, God's calling the judges of Israel, the national leaders, gods. Small g, gods. And Hebrew God is L-E-L, we would say, or plural is Elohim. So God, El, God's Elohim. So God, speaking in Psalm 82, calls the rulers of Israel, those who 
ruled in his name with his authority. He called them gods, small g. Two things on this point. One is that use in the Old Testament and elsewhere of Elohim or El is broader than deity itself. Someone who had authority or superior rank, magistrates, kings, their officers, etc., were often called El or Elohim. It was used broadly. But also, and to Jesus' point here, he says, hey, if God could call you humans who rule in his name with his authority, gods, then how much more could he call me, God the Son, the one the Father sent from heaven, the Son of God? How much more, if he can call men gods, can he call me or can I call myself the Son of God? So it's an argument, basically, that doesn't stack up, Jesus says. Finishing out this passage, verse 37, If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. If I do them, though, you don't believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father's in me and I in the Father. So they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Some concluded, in this crowd, some concluded Jesus was a liar. Some concluded he was either a lunatic or demon-possessed, but others followed him back past the river and believed him. They believed his claim. As the carpenter's son from Nazareth, from the dusty back roads of Israel, to also the fact that Jesus' lineage was a little questionable from people who'd known where he came from originally, his claims to be God on earth and Israel's Messiah would sound a little uh, iffy at best. But then he invited them to examine his claims and his works. I'm going to close with... uh, Peter and Lucy again, and Susan and Edmund, in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy's trying to convince her siblings that this wild, improbable claim she's made is really true, her older siblings are trying to make sense of it, and they're afraid she's a lunatic, that she's lost her mind. That's the problem. So they take their story and their problem to the old professor there in the house, and they're going to lay it out for him and get some help here. They went and knocked at the study door, and the professor said, Come in, and got up and found chairs for them, and said he was quite at their disposal. Then he sat listening to them with the tips of his fingers pressed together, and never interrupting till they had finished the whole story. After that he said nothing for quite a long while. Then he cleared his throat and said the last thing either of them expected. How do you know, he asked, that your sister's story is not true? Oh, but, began Susan, and then stopped. Anyone could see from the old man's face that he was perfectly serious. Then Susan pulled herself together and said, But Edmund said they'd only been pretending. Well, that's the point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration, very careful consideration. For instance, if you'll excuse me for asking the question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as the more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? That's just the funny thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up till now, I'd have said Lucy every time. What do you think, my dear, said the professor, turning to Susan. Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter. But this couldn't be true, all this about the wood and the fawn. 
That is more than I know, said the professor, and a charge of lying against someone whom you have always found truthful is a very serious thing, a very serious thing indeed. We were afraid it mightn't even be lying, said Susan. We thought there might be something wrong with Lucy. Madness, you mean, said the professor quite coolly. Oh, you can make your minds easy about that. One has only to look at her and talk to her to see that she's not mad. But then, said Susan and stopped, she'd never dreamed that a grown-up would talk like the professor and didn't know what to think. Logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, she's a liar, or she's mad, she's a lunatic, or she's telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies. It's obvious she's not mad. For the moment, unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she's telling the truth. And that's exactly where Jesus' audience was then, and it's exactly where you and I and the people around us live today. I think one of the terrible, desperate things is this. Many people never seriously consider the claims of Christ. Never seriously consider the claims of Christ. He made these wild, fantastic, seemingly impossible claims, which, if true, mean that the eternal destiny of everyone who's ever lived on this planet hinges on him and their attitude towards Christ, or before Christ, towards the Messiah, the promised one God the Father would send. You know, in our culture, we're so entertained and we're so educated. We've got so many things going on. You know, many, if not most of us, never seriously consider the claims of Christ. We don't even get to the liar, the lunatic, or the Lord question because we don't even entertain the claims. The good news is, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've heard the claims and you've believed them, then Jesus says you're a sheep. And how safe are you? You've got eternal life. You've got abundant, overflowing life now that lasts forever. And you're in His hand safe, and you're in the Father's hand safe. If you're here today and you're saying, I'm not sure about all that, you know the greatest thing you can do for yourself, the most important thing you can do, is to ask yourself, it's to face honestly the question, who is he? Do these claims stack up? It's to examine the question. Is Jesus who he said he was, or is he a liar, or a lunatic? But come to some conclusion. He's the most important person, arguably, in history. He's changed the course of all the world since his presence on the earth, since his death and resurrection. And he claims that it's on him and on faith in him that all of our eternities hang. It seems like a fair thing to say we ought to examine the arguments. We ought to listen to the testimony, whatever conclusion we come to. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck that today is no different, people today no different than people in Jesus' day. And Lord, those who were willing to entertain his claims were incredulous. And Lord, uh, I understand why. But Lord Jesus laid out his case so compellingly and so clearly, and he left no options as to what the options related to him were. Some did believe, Lord, and some are still believing today. And Lord, for those who believed, I pray that you help us live lives wildly free from fear. 
and abundantly joyful and peaceful in a way that honors you and what you've done for us. And Father, for those of us who have believed, I pray that we would share that joyful, liberating hope that we have in Christ with those around us. And Father, I pray that you would use us to honor your Son, to heap more honor on your Son by sharing that hope, that joy, that eternal life that Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, gives with those around us. And Lord, for those who don't yet know you, I pray that as they examine the claims, they'll see past liar and lunatic to Jesus, a Lord and a Savior and a Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep so that he can give them eternal, abundant life. We pray in his name. Amen.